Of all the challenges cancer brings up, two of the most important ones are facing the demands put on you as a caregiver for a cancer survivor and sorting out your feelings about what's going on in your life. Some days you may feel overwhelmed, hopeless, resentful, even angry. You can't possibly be the superhero everyone seems to expect you to be. But on other days, you're ready to fight for what you need. You see that you're making progress. You remember that there's always something to hope for and work toward. The key is to recognize all of these feelings. In addition to the one feeling you should not fear, the feeling that you are failing, you've got the toughest job in the entire world. Anything positive you can do is a victory. Unlike the other programs in the Cancer Survival Toolbox, this program, entitled Caring for the Caregiver, is just for you. You deserve it. You need it. How do I know? Well, I've been through it, too, having been on both sides, a cancer survivor as well as a caregiver. Hi, my name is Marsha Wallace, and I've been a cancer survivor since 1985 when I was diagnosed with breast cancer. And then I needed to be a caregiver for my husband, Denny, who had pancreatic cancer. If my voice sounds familiar, it may be because, as an actress on TV, I played the parts of Carol the Receptionist on The Bob Newhart Show and the neighbor lady on Full House. I'm also the voice of Mrs. Krabappel, Bart's teacher on The Simpsons. As a cancer survivor and caregiver, I've learned a lot about myself and about life in general. And while each of us is different, many of the challenges we face are the same. The people you'll hear from in this program will confirm something you already know. It's not easy being a caregiver. But these stories will also show you that there are many ways to look at and manage the challenges ahead of you. They can help you find the fighter inside you, to find the hope and strength to make the most of it while taking care of yourself as well as your loved one. When my wife, Susan, was diagnosed with breast cancer, we both went into shock. I felt angry and scared, but I didn't think I should burden her with my feelings. It's taken a lot out of both of us, but we found out that it really does help to talk about it. When the doctors told us that there was nothing more they could do for my husband's cancer, we knew that we needed to find information to help us move forward. Our group of friends has become like an extended family. So when Jean needed help, we all pitched in. Since I'm an oncology nurse and live the closest to Jean, I was happy to step up to be the coordinator of our caregiving efforts. It's meant a lot to me to be able to help her so much. After my husband was diagnosed with cancer and after his surgery, he wanted me with him all of the time. Over time, I stopped doing many of the things I enjoyed so much and began to feel more and more isolated. My husband had just been diagnosed with lymphoma. I have two young children, a full-time job, and I'm providing care for my 82-year-old mother-in-law. I was stretched about as far as I could possibly go. The day Brian was supposed to start his chemotherapy, he told his mom and me that his nurse had talked to him about sperm banking. He said he needed to do this before he started his chemotherapy. His mom and I were afraid that if we delayed his chemotherapy, it might affect his chance of being cured. His nurse suggested we all talk to the doctor before making any decision. We told Brian that we would support his decision, whatever it would be. My son's doctor sat me down and said, I want to be sure you understand this. There are many people here to help you. We want to help you. Just tell us what you need. I will always be grateful for what she told me and the way she said it. It made me realize that I could turn to other people to help give my son the care he needed. I kept telling myself that taking care of Joe was more important than going to a wedding. But I loved Sharon like a daughter. I just felt so sad about not being able to be there on her special day. 
Welcome to the Cancer Survival Toolbox program entitled Caring for the Caregiver. This program is different from the other programs in the Cancer Survival Toolbox because it focuses on caregivers, that is, persons who give rather than receive care. It is meant to help family members, friends, or anyone else who has the sometimes difficult task of caring for someone who has been diagnosed with cancer. Caring for the Caregiver is just one of a series of Cancer Survival Toolbox programs. There are also programs on communicating, finding information, making decisions, solving problems, negotiating, and ways to stand up for your rights. In addition, there are other special topics programs, like ones on finding ways to pay for care and living beyond cancer, as well as programs on different types of cancers. You can listen to or read these programs online at www.canceradvocacy.org toolbox. You can also download the audio files from iTunes. The Cancer Survival Toolbox comes with a free resource booklet, also available at www.canceradvocacy.org toolbox. Resources and organizations related to each Cancer Survival Toolbox topic are included. Now, let's talk more about the topic of this program, Caring for the Caregiver. Throughout all of the programs in the toolbox, you will hear the term cancer survivor used instead of other terms like cancer patient or cancer victim. This is an important point because we define a survivor in the following way. From the time of diagnosis and for the balance of life, a person diagnosed with cancer is a survivor. Another important point to remember is that you, as a caregiver, are also a survivor. Although you may not have had cancer yourself, you too are surviving the challenges, responsibilities, and life-changing effects of this disease and its treatment. We hope this program will help you understand how important it is to take care of yourself, to take care of your own needs. Linda, an oncology social worker, has an important perspective on the impact of cancer survivorship on caregivers. It is easy to become overwhelmed while caring for someone. Have you ever felt like everyone simply expects you to know automatically what to do, how to do it, where to go, and what questions to ask? This is probably an entirely new experience for you. You, too, have to learn about and adjust to all the complications of a disease that is threatening the life or the health of the person in your care. Here's a passage from Ross Gray, a Toronto psychologist, that describes the frustration with his caregiving role. I share this with caregivers I work with. I have run a gamut of feelings over and over, anger at the impact of illness on our lives, anger at my loved one for needing so much from me, sadness at her pain and my helplessness to take it away, guilt that I'm not there for her enough of the time, and guilt about my own desires to escape. This is tough stuff. Anyone who has to care for someone over the long term can hardly help getting worn down, even bone-weary, from the emotional turmoil. Maybe you have felt some of these same feelings, or all of them, at one time or another. The challenge is to learn how to balance the needs of the person you are caring for with your needs. 
In order to find this balance, you first need to identify both the limitations and the strengths that you bring to this situation. Limitations may include high medical bills and not enough money, juggling a job with the care of children and an ill person, or your own poor health. Strengths may be an extended family that can help with everyday tasks, a generous employer who allows flexibility in your job, or a strong faith that helps to sustain you. Once you identify these limitations and strengths, you can then develop a plan of action that best cares for and nurtures everyone involved, including yourself. We hope this program for caregivers will help you by strengthening the following basic skills. First, communicating, so that you can express your own needs and feelings and be able to listen to the needs and feelings of others. Second, finding information so that you can better understand the disease and treatment and also find the resources and support you need to care for yourself along with others. Third, making decisions so that the burdens of care can be shared and you decrease the chances of feeling overwhelmed or burned out. Fourth, solving problems so that you are able to adapt to the changes brought about by cancer and realize that you may need to tap into help outside of the family unit. Fifth, negotiating so that you can work toward reaching agreements that work best for everyone. And sixth, standing up for your rights, being able to ask for those things that you need. Let's begin with the first skill, communicating by listening to John. When my wife Susan was diagnosed with breast cancer, we both went into shock. I felt angry and scared all at once, but I didn't think I should tell her. I didn't want her to worry about my feelings, too. The whole thing has taken a lot out of both of us, but we found out that it really does help to talk about it. Communicating, which involves sharing information and sharing feelings, is an important skill for everyone dealing with cancer. Yet, many studies confirm what people often say. Communication can be difficult for many cancer survivors and their caregivers. Those who care about each other may not want to share the strong feelings that come with a diagnosis of cancer. And these feelings may make it hard to talk about the questions and concerns they have with doctors, friends, even their own family members. The communicating program in the Cancer Survival Toolbox teaches the communication skills of being assertive, using I statements, active listening, and expressing feelings. In that program, we review how you can use communication skills to improve your well-being, because when your well-being is maintained, you can do a better job of helping to maintain the well-being of those you care for. Let's hear how John used the communication skill assertiveness to solve a problem. When Susan first got cancer and we were figuring out what we needed to do to keep our family going, I tried to avoid telling people at work about it. I was trying to keep my night shift job and stay awake all day to get everything done for Susan and our two kids. When my in-laws offered to help, I really didn't want to accept it. I, I guess I didn't want to have to admit that I wasn't in control of everything. But I was getting exhausted, and the treatments were taking everything out of Susan. So I finally decided I had to tell my boss so I could get time off if I needed it. It was hard to say, I need this because my wife is sick. But when I put it that way, he didn't give me trouble. In fact, he was really good about it. Turns out his mother-in-law had the same thing. He told me to take the time when I needed it and that he would work it out with my supervisors.
Being assertive is important for everyone affected by cancer. Being assertive means stating what you think or what you need in a way that clearly lets the other person know that you are serious. In today's world, being a caretaker often demands that we be assertive to be sure that our needs are met. Using I statements is another important communication skill. This means making statements such as I feel or I need instead of you did this or you need to do that. I statements are usually received better by listeners because they don't put people on the defensive. John used an I statement when he said to his boss, I need to be able to take some time off to help my wife with her cancer treatments. One of the hardest things for me when I did take time off to go with Susan to her treatments was making sure I was hearing what the doctors and nurses were trying to explain, especially when they would use the names of medications or medical terms I've never heard of before. The first time they would explain something, I had to stop them and say, I'm not really sure I understand what you mean. Could you explain it to me again? I had to be sure I understood because I was the one watching out for Susan at home. What John is describing is another important communication skill, active listening. This means showing the person who is speaking that you are listening and checking to make sure what you heard is really what they were trying to say. When you use active listening, you are much more likely to get the message that others are trying to tell you. For a while, I tried to put my own feelings aside, especially in front of my wife. I was afraid that if I let myself feel sad or angry, I'd lose control. I didn't want her or anyone to know about my feelings. But it was really hard sometimes, because we were going through tough times, and I had a lot of strong feelings about it. After a couple of months... I got to the point where I started to blow up at everybody. I'd start yelling at the kids for little things, and I even yelled at Susan. Well, she yelled right back at me. Then I felt really guilty. After all, Susan was the one who was sick, and here I was yelling at her and our kids. I realized then I had to admit how angry I was that this was happening to her, and that I couldn't change it. I finally found a time when the two of us could be alone together, and we both agreed we needed to talk. The first time I said out loud, I'm mad at the cancer, not you. <laughs> I felt a lot of relief. I was surprised Susan could actually listen to my feelings without getting upset. When she heard me say that, she told me she understood how I felt because she was angry about the cancer too. Since then, we've been able to fight the cancer not each other. It actually brought us close together again. It is natural for caregivers to feel a range of emotions when someone they care about is ill. Studies tell us that the emotions in people close to those with cancer are very similar to those that the person with cancer is feeling. At times, caregivers might be even more depressed or anxious. Because of this, it is just as important for caregivers to express how they feel as it is for those diagnosed with cancer. From a social worker's perspective, I know that when feelings about cancer are expressed, it gives people an opportunity to support each other and reduce the stress associated with anger or sadness. Families often find it helpful to share their feelings with each other as a way of getting and giving support. I guess you could say I've gone through just about every feeling there is during this cancer treatment. I've been really scared at times, afraid of losing Susan, afraid of my family falling apart I have to say I was even afraid of being physically close at first. 
After her mastectomy, I was worried that I'd hurt her if I touched her in the wrong way or that our physical relationship would end. Susan was the one who brought it up the first time, not that long after she came home from the hospital. She had talked to the nurse and social worker at the hospital, and I guess they helped her figure out that we needed to talk about it. I was relieved because I knew I needed to show her how much I loved her, but I wasn't sure how to handle physical closeness. It, it was actually one of the first times we'd really talked straight out about her cancer and how it might affect us. We both ended up feeling like there were a lot of ways to physically show our caring for each other, and our relationship has changed for the better in some ways. There are many changes in relationships and family life that cancer and cancer treatment can cause. Good communication helps family members adjust to these changes. Good communication can help with the decision-making that is needed during cancer treatment and with the other important skills of finding information, negotiating, and problem-solving. Communication does not make problems go away but it can help you gain support and understanding so you can manage cancer and its treatment more effectively. And remember, everyone can benefit from support, and it can come from many places, from other family members and friends, from cancer professionals, and from others who are going through cancer too. Some caregivers find it helpful to attend support groups or counseling sessions where they can express their feelings. Even difficult feelings are easier to deal with if you have support. It took me a while to go to a support group. Maybe it's part of being a guy. I, I didn't see myself sitting in a group of people and talking about my problems. But we heard from a friend about a group for husbands. The first time I went, it was helpful to meet other men going through the same thing I was. You know, I, I found out I could just go and listen if I don't want to discuss my own feelings. I've gotten some really useful information about how other people are dealing with cancer in their families. The group is a place where I can say how I feel to people who understand because they're going through it too. Sometimes I am more comfortable talking after I've heard what other people in the group are feeling. John's story is common. The group for husbands that he went to is sponsored by the Breast Cancer Network of Strength. It can be challenging for caregivers to ask for what they need but good communication can lead to better care. Before you continue, or at some point when you have the time, you may want to try the following exercise to help you with communication. On a blank sheet of paper, draw a large square. Draw one line down the middle, from top to bottom, to divide the square in half. Now, draw a line across the middle, from side to side, to divide the square into four equal boxes. In one box, write a thought or feeling about cancer that you have not told anyone. In a second box, write something you feel very good about in your life. In the third box, write a question you have about cancer. In the fourth box, write down something that gives you hope. Now, look at each box and what you have written in it. Think about the communication skills, using I statements, being assertive, active listening to check the message, and sharing feelings. Next, choose one box and practice how you might communicate what you have written. After you have practiced, try out your skills with someone you trust. The more you practice, the more skilled at communication you will become. Now, let's talk about another basic skill for caregivers as well as cancer survivors, information seeking. 
Let's hear from Elena. I'll never forget that day in the doctor's office at the cancer center. The doctor told Salvador, my husband, and me there was nothing more he or anyone could do for us. What do we do now? Where do we go from here? I needed information. As a caregiver of someone with cancer, you are always needing information in order to make decisions, solve problems, get help, and move forward. The need for information goes on throughout treatment and even after treatment ends. When cancer progresses, family members may need to assume more and more of their loved one's physical care. They may also need to assume more of the information-seeking role. In the example of Elena and Salvador, when their healthcare team had no more treatment options to provide, where could they turn for information on what to do next? I knew after that visit with the doctor that I needed help to deal with Salvador's physical needs. I needed a plan for Salvador's care. I needed information in order to decide what was best for Salvador, our children, and me. The doctor mentioned hospice. I didn't know what hospice was. It turns out that hospice is a special kind of care designed to provide support for people in the final phase of a terminal illness. Hospice would offer my husband and me care that would focus on quality rather than length of life. I also knew I needed to call my insurance company. I remembered that I had worked with a case manager in the past in order to get Salvador's experimental therapy covered by insurance. Lifting Salvador on my own at home was really hurting my back. His physical care, like bathing, was becoming more than I could do by myself. I didn't dare fall asleep at night for fear Salvador would wake up and try to get out of bed on his own. He was getting more and more confused at times, especially at night. I was exhausted and sad. I wasn't taking care of myself like I should. If this were to go on, I would be in bed next to Salvador. I knew that I didn't want to end up sick also. Our children live away from us. Our girls are busy working and raising their own young children. Our sons are busy with their jobs and family. I was concerned about Salvador and me becoming a burden on our children. The case manager at the insurance company was able to explain Salvador's coverage to me. I asked about hospice, nursing homes, and attendant or live-in care coverage. She was helpful, but I still needed more information. The oncology social worker was able to provide more information about hospice. She gave me information on nursing homes and agencies that provide in-home help and assistance. She answered my questions and helped me understand the different kinds of services that are available. We looked at the options and what effect they would have on Salvador and me. She helped me to give permission to myself to think of my needs as well as the needs of Salvador and my children. I don't honestly think that I had ever considered my own needs until this time, at least not without feeling guilty. This brought up other questions we needed to have answered. How could I give Salvador the best care and the care that he wanted while still taking care of myself? Maybe I should let my children tell me what is a burden for them and what might be easy for them to do to help. What did they feel that they could do to help in this situation? What could I do with all the stress that I was feeling? Well, my son, who loves the Internet, got me more information about hospice. He also found a chat room on the Internet where I could talk with other caregivers. A couple of the people in the chat room gave me suggestions that I was able to talk about with our social worker. 
Soon, all my children were exploring options and getting information together. I visited my local library. The librarian showed me how to use the computer there. I also visited my local senior center. The people there were very helpful with information on local nursing homes and even had a list of private duty attendants who had been screened and other resources. They also had an exercise program and some other activities that sounded interesting to me. One of the best things I did for myself was to attend a local support group for caregivers like me. People shared with me their first-hand experiences. I also got some training in stress management from the local wellness center. This helped me a lot. I knew that I needed to make sure to get some exercise and do other outside activities every day to get my life back in balance. With each place I went for information, I had to judge how good the information was and if the information really fit my own situation. Hearing some of the same information from several sources helped me feel good about that information. The social worker was one of the experts I chose to help me go through it all to pick out what I needed. Salvador and I met with our children to talk about this next phase of our lives with cancer. We discussed Salvador's needs. We discussed his insurance coverage. We then laid out all the options on the table with all the information I had gathered. My children had many questions. I was surprised, and I think they were too, at how much I knew. Making these decisions was not easy, but it felt like we were going into things with our eyes wide open. I think our expectations were more real than they might have been without the information we had gathered. We also felt that we weren't locked into any one thing. I was very proud of my children and myself for how we were able to handle this new situation. I'm sure Salvador could see how much we all loved him and treasured every day with him. Let's review what Elena was able to do that helped Salvador, their children, and herself. She took the time she needed to get important information. She put together a good team to help her. This team included the nurse, case manager at the insurance company, social worker, children, support group members, and librarian. She was willing to ask questions and explore options. She checked the value of information she was getting by looking for more than one opinion. She looked at information from different sources and checked to see if it agreed. She chose a reliable expert, her social worker, a person she trusted and with whom she could discuss information and receive feedback. She was creative in her approach and used all resources available to her. And she didn't do it alone. Elena sought help through her team and her family. The family benefited from the information that Elena was able to gather. They made their decisions as a team. As you know, a diagnosis of cancer requires a lot of important decisions. Making decisions about treatment options and life choices is a major challenge for caregivers and cancer survivors. But a growing number of people who get cancer are without family members. Either family is at a great distance away or families have grown apart so no family member is close by to provide care. This is when friends and neighbors can step in to fill caregiving roles that might otherwise be provided by family. Let's listen to two longtime friends, Sandra and Jean, talk about how they manage this kind of situation. 
Like so many in my generation, we live far away from our real families. Our group of friends has become extended family members, and so when Jean needed help, we all pitched in. But it seemed logical to me, and I guess to the rest of our circle of friends, that I should be the coordinator of our caregiving efforts, so to speak, because I'm an oncology nurse and live near Jean. I visited Sandra just before I was due for a follow-up appointment with my oncologist. I'd been feeling really good. My job was settling down. My daughter, Erin, had become a lovely, busy, popular, and happy teenager. My husband, Hal, and I had been having some rough spots in our marriage before I was diagnosed, but we'd been able to work things out. I'm so grateful for all of my friends, especially Sandra. She has been so helpful right from the time I was diagnosed. She helped me find a cancer doctor who I really like. Sandra was able to guide Hal and me in figuring out how to talk to our daughter about my cancer. And because she'd known my parents as long as she'd known me, Sandra was, and still is, a communication link between my family back in Nebraska and me. Sandra wanted to help Jean stay in touch with her family and friends during her treatment. So she helped her set up a web page. Jean was able to post notes on it about how she was doing and also to get messages from her family and friends along the way. Also, Sandra set up a group of friends on the site to drive Jean to radiation therapy every day when she was too tired to drive and Hal was working. The Internet actually made a big difference for everyone. A list of websites that can be used to help keep your family and friends updated can be found in the Cancer Survival Toolbox resource booklet. Before you create a web page, you may want to discuss with your family how much and what types of information you are comfortable sharing with others. To help someone who's been such a good friend, it means a lot to me to be able to help Jean. Well, when Hal called me with the news that Jean's cancer had come back, I was stunned even though I'd always known this was a possibility. But once we got over that first shock, I started to work to rally the troops again. At this point, one of my major roles as a caregiver was to help Jean, and Hal too, gather information so they could make decisions about her treatment. Jean asked me to go to her next doctor's appointment with them so that I could be another set of ears. She knew that her state of mind might not let her take in all the information she needed to hear from her doctor. Of course, I was glad to go with her. Honored, really to know that she trusts me that much. Jean, Hal, Aaron, and I had a long talk, and they decided to wait until they made a treatment decision before telling Jean's parents. Yes, we knew that there were just so many important decisions that I, well, Hal and Aaron too, would need to make. I really thought then and still think that involving my mother and father at that stage of things would have just complicated our decision-making process. Plus, I just didn't want to have to worry about them then. I knew this news would upset them a lot. Looking back, it seems like that turned out to be the right decision. It seems like no matter how old we get, our parents will always be parents. At first, it was hard for Jean's parents to see any of us as adults, instead of the teenagers we were when we first became friends. But eventually, Jean's parents came to see and even admire, I think, the mature way everyone pitched in to help their daughter. We all became sort of like teammates fighting to win whatever way was best for Jean. I think the decisions that had to be made involved a lot more issues than Jean, Hal, or their families ever imagined. Of course, the first decision involved the kind of treatment Jean should have. Very early on, she was leaning toward being in a clinical trial, but Hal wasn't so sure. We spent many hours talking about the pros and cons, weighing the risks and benefits of all the treatment options Jean's doctors presented to us. 
Well, almost every cancer survivor I've met says that once you have cancer, you are never the same. And that sometimes after cancer, they were stronger, better now than before they had cancer. I think this is what happened to me. My cancer diagnosis reminded me in no uncertain terms that I'm not going to live forever. I had also decided that I wouldn't let the cancer rule my life. I knew that if I let things get me down, I'd run the risk of spoiling the time I do have. But knowing that I am mortal, that someday I'll die, pushed me to get my affairs in order and make sure that my family would be okay. First of all, I updated my will. I had a lawyer help me complete what they call an advanced directive. That's a legal form where I put down on paper what choices I would make if certain situations come up. The advanced directive will make it possible for Hal and my doctors to follow my wishes, even though I may not be able to speak for myself at the time the treatment decisions need to be made. Filling out this form helped us talk through all the complex issues of what I want to happen if my time to die comes sooner rather than later. Hal and I found an accountant to help us work out some financial issues and ways to make sure that Aaron can go to college, even if it's some sort of loan program. We asked a lawyer about viatical settlements, where I would sell my life insurance policy to a company to get my life insurance money now. This doesn't seem necessary at the moment, but we know the option of a viatical settlement is there if we want to consider it later on. Having all of these discussions behind me was a big relief, and it let my family and me focus on getting through this. Being clear on what I really want helped my family, Sandra, and the rest of my caregivers by taking a lot of the uncertainty out of the future. It was important for all of us who were helping Jean to know exactly what she wants. Now, no one has any doubts about what we should do and what we shouldn't do. It was important to Jean to continue to be involved in her own care and in making decisions. That sort of control would always be important for her, and really for all of us. Of course, other issues came up. Part of my treatment did make me pretty sick, and I was so afraid. I was afraid of becoming a burden on my family and friends. My parents came out, and of course I worried that taking care of me would affect their health, too. I worried that my relationship with Hal would suffer. I've heard stories about how some marriages fall apart because of the stresses of dealing with cancer. I worried about the costs of my care, all the medicines, the special equipment that we used in our home, and things like that. You know... It was a help to know that Jean's worries were pretty typical for people facing cancer. So common, in fact, that I could guess what would happen, what Jean was going through, her physical needs, her worries and concerns before they actually happened. Being able to think of likely problems and solving them before they became problems would be key to how everyone would cope. What I know about Jean's kind of cancer and her treatment and our discussions with her health care team helped us plan for her physical and emotional needs. One of our friends, Bonnie, is a social worker. She helped Jean, Hal, and Erin talk with each other about things that really matter to them. Bonnie reminded us, Jean's caregivers, to take care of ourselves, too, so that no one would get burnt out or feel overwhelmed. Jean agreed to be honest with us about her needs, and that helped us come up with a schedule of shifts so that a caregiver would be with Jean whenever she needed it. This allowed everybody to be a part-time caregiver when it fit into their schedules best. Caregivers' lives were disrupted as little as possible, while at the same time allowing us to help our friend in this very special way. We also arranged time for Jean just to be with her family, which gave the caregivers a break, too. Jean, Hal, and I talked about how to make time when they could just be husband and wife, not patient and caregiver. I showed Erin how to do some of the nursing tasks for Jean. I know Erin took great pride in developing these skills and in being able to help her mother in important ways. Oh, yeah. Erin also loved learning how to cook from our friend Tom, who's a really good cook. 
Al was very patient with some of the recipes Aaron made, especially for him. Some of her early cooking experiments have become great family stories. You know, Erin really grew as a person through it all. Jean's cancer is under control, and she's gone back to work. The roles in her family continue to change as everyone's needs have changed over time. Erin cooks dinner for the family pretty often now, and our whole caregiving group gets together a lot with Jean, Hal, and Erin just to have fun. Our friendships are so strong now. While I know that caregiving can be an emotionally and physically draining experience, I found it to be a very special thing that I could give to my friend. Taking care of people with cancer is the profession I love, and having the knowledge and skills to care for my friend has really given me some of my most rewarding caregiving experiences. In this situation, a circle of friends came together to help one of their own. Each friend had something special to contribute. One, her nursing abilities, another, her knowledge of emotional and social needs, and yet another, his cooking skills. From this example, we can pick out elements that lead to the success of any caregiving experience. First, potential problems were identified and caregiving plans were carefully thought out. Second, the person with cancer was very involved in developing caregiving plans. Third, no one person was left to assume all caregiving duties. Instead, tasks were shared and caregivers were expected to pay attention to their own needs as well. Fourth, caregivers were invited to contribute in ways that used any unique skills they have. And fifth, each family member's needs were very much a part of the total caregiving plan. Cancer creates a crisis of some measure for almost all families. We know that when people are living through a crisis such as cancer, their usual ways of solving problems and their normal ways of coping might not work as well as they did with past problems. They sometimes don't even know how to think about the problem, how to decide what should be done, or even what they can do to get the problem under control. In short, for a while at least, the family may feel too overwhelmed to put a workable plan in place. Most of the time, a crisis has a time limit, usually about four to six weeks. By then, people have adapted to the problem and have started finding ways to deal with it. Sometimes, though, the burden seems too great and families get stuck. They can't seem to find a way through the crisis, and they may need some outside help to get them moving forward. Listen to the problem that Bob and Mary faced when Bob needed surgery that would change the way he looked. Bob became so depressed about his cancer that he stopped going out. Mary didn't know how to help her husband, and they became isolated, alone with the cancer. Last year, right after we celebrated our 45th wedding anniversary, my husband began having severe pain in his left jaw. We were shocked to learn that he had a cancerous tumor in his jawbone. The doctors explained that the only treatment was surgery. It was very hard for us to take it all in, and things seemed to happen so fast. I was surprised at how short a time Bob was in the hospital after surgery, and I didn't get very much training about his care before he came home. Even with the home nurse coming by to change his dressings, there was so much to do. Preparing his special food took a long time each day, and we had a hard time keeping his pain under control. But most of all, it was hard dealing with Bob's moods. At first, he seemed angry at everyone, me included. He didn't want any visitors, and he refused to go out. He said he felt like a freak. 
that he didn't want people staring at him. The doctors had suggested reconstructive surgery, but Bob was having none of it. He said they had already put him through enough. Every time I tried to bring the subject up, he would get angry and more withdrawn. Another hard part was that Bob wanted me with him all the time. We have always been very close. We never had children, and our relatives all lived some distance away. But we had an active social life here, and I thought we had lots of friends. Yet after a few weeks, the friends just seemed to fade away. I guess I can't blame them. Bob didn't make them feel welcome when they stopped in after his surgery. So soon they just stopped coming altogether. I began to feel more and more isolated, and sometimes I was even mad at Bob, too. Sometimes whole weeks would go by, and I didn't see anyone other than Bob, and he seemed more and more depressed. Some days he hardly talked to me. Through it all, my minister kept coming to visit, and he kept encouraging me to get out more. He even offered to help arrange for some people to come by and stay with Bob while I went out. But Bob didn't want that. Finally, my minister told me right out that he thought I needed some help. He suggested I call my younger sister and ask her to come for a visit. I knew Bob wouldn't like it, but I was feeling pretty desperate. Well, Judy's visit was a turning point. When my sister got here, she was shocked to see us both. She had expected Bob to look different, but she said, I too look sick and exhausted. I guess I did look a sight. I hadn't had my hair done in months, and I'd lost a lot of weight. I just felt worn out. My sister just took charge. First thing she did was make a doctor appointment for me. I had a physical, and the doctor said my blood pressure was a little high, and I was anemic. Most of all, he said I needed some rest. I told him how worried I was about Bob, how he seemed so withdrawn and depressed. Dr. Morris has been our family doctor for more than 20 years. He called Bob right on the spot and told him he wanted the home care nurse to stop by again. To my surprise, Bob agreed. When the nurse came, she spent a lot of time talking with both Bob and me about our feelings. She called Dr. Morris, who ordered an antidepressant for Bob's depression. Again, I was surprised that Bob agreed to take the medicine. I could see a difference in Bob's attitude over the next couple of weeks. Meanwhile, Judy took me to the beauty shop, and we went together to my Baba class. She also took me to the Cancer Resource Center at our local hospital. There was a social worker there who suggested I might want to join a family caregiver group. My sister went with me to my first meeting. It was so good just to see that others there had had problems like mine. After the second meeting, I began to understand how important it was to take care of myself and to feel connected to others. I made an effort to call up some of our old friends and get together. One of the best things that happened was that the husband of a woman in our group also had gone through head and neck surgery for cancer, and he had the reconstruction work done. I invited this couple, Jim and Betty, to our home for dinner. Jim and Bob really hit it off. They liked many of the same things, especially golf. Bob said he hadn't played golf in almost a year. 
that he couldn't stand the thought of people staring at him. Jim said he felt the same way at first after his surgery, but he refused to let cancer rob him of the joy of golfing. About a week later, Jim stopped by early one Saturday morning, and he actually talked Bob into going out to hit a few golf balls. And just yesterday, Bob told me that he'd been thinking about going to see that plastic surgeon that his cancer doctor recommended. It seemed like we had both gotten so far down after the cancer that we couldn't get out of the situation by ourselves. I just stopped realizing that there were people who cared about us and who wanted to help. My minister, my family doctor, my sister, and many others. I go to the caregiver support group every week. It helps me to realize that I'm not the only one with problems, and it helps me put my problems in perspective. Bob and Mary had been overwhelmed by Bob's cancer and his surgery. They had no immediate family in the area, and Bob's anger and depression made it hard for friends to help. When Mary stopped going out, too, there was no one left to help them. When two people are involved in the same crisis, it becomes almost impossible for them to support one another equally because all of their emotional energy is going into managing the crisis. When this happens, outside help is needed, and families need to be aware that there are many people and resources to support them. Let's try a short exercise. Take out a sheet of paper and a pencil. Make a list of all possible resources that you know about, ones that you can take advantage of if you need help. You might start with the nurse in your cancer doctor's office. Add your place of worship, the American Cancer Society, or the Cancer Resource Center of your hospital. Go through the yellow pages of the phone book. Reread all of the materials you received when you were discharged from the hospital. The next time you visit your cancer doctor's office, pick up any brochures that are on display in the waiting room. Add these resources to your list. Then, make a second list with the heading of People I Can Count On. Put their names and what they could help you with if you needed assistance. Whenever someone asks if there is anything he or she can do for you, add their names to the list. People genuinely want to help others who are having a hard time. Sometimes we let pride, shyness, or exhaustion get in the way of asking for help, or we become so overwhelmed that we can't think where or to whom to turn. You'll find that there are probably many resources and many people out there to support you. Oncology social workers like Linda will have specific suggestions for families who are in the midst of a crisis. Based on the work I've done with many families in crisis over the years, I have several recommendations that might help you when your family is struggling with managing a problem as big as cancer. These suggestions are especially geared towards caregivers. First, keep to your usual activities and routines as much as possible. This includes your hobbies, sports and exercise programs, and spending time with friends and other family members. Take routine breaks from discussing and living the cancer crisis. Vacations, even if only for a day or two, can help you take a much-needed break and come back better able to do your caregiving role. Even if your loved one is extremely ill, try not to exclude him or her from your family decision-making process. While some family roles may need to shift, all family members, including the cancer survivor, need to feel that they are a valued part of the family system. Don't assume that other people know what you think, feel, or need. 
asked directly for what you need. Ask for assistance from extended family and friends for help with things like picking up a prescription, grocery shopping, or helping get your loved one to a doctor's appointment. They'll be glad they can be useful. Don't cut yourself off from people and groups who can support you. For example, if you have always gone to religious services on a regular basis, keep on going. Or you can ask your clergy person to stop by when you can't attend services. Likewise, don't put your own needs on hold. Keep appointments for medical and dental checkups and for personal care. Being a caregiver can be exhausting, and it can take a toll on your health. Eat a healthy diet, exercise, and get as much rest as you can. Remember, if you get sick, it will only make the situation worse. Don't allow yourself to feel you have to do everything. While you may want and need to be the main caregiver for your loved one, keep in mind that others can help too. You don't have to be present all the time. In fact, if you never leave your loved one with anyone else, or if you never go out, you may be contributing to making him or her overly dependent on you. Finally, find a strong support network. Talking with people with similar experiences or those in similar situations can be very helpful, and you realize you are not alone. There's no question, being the caregiver for a loved one who has cancer is a hard job. No matter how much you love that person, there are times when you will feel burdened and exhausted. The most important things you can do are to take care of yourself and reach out to others. Don't let cancer isolate you from those who are there to help. At some point after you first face a crisis, things seem to settle into a new routine. The cancer treatment may end or become more manageable. The immediate crisis is over and perhaps your loved one may be able to resume the life that was put on hold. This is a positive change, but it creates the need for a change in family roles again. If these changes become more difficult for you, you may benefit by talking to a social worker, oncology nurse, or support group about the situation. As a caregiver, you've got so many roles and responsibilities. You've got at least two lives to think about, yours and the person you are caring for, so many decisions to make and problems to solve. Negotiating is a crucial skill for you, as Mei Ling's situation shows. My husband had just been diagnosed with lymphoma. We have two young children who are four and six. I have a full-time job. I also take care of my husband's mother. She needs to have someone checking on her daily. I take her shopping, prepare her meals, take her to the doctor, and on and on. Negotiation is a process through which two or more people exchange their viewpoints on an issue clearly state their needs and desires, and try to reach an agreement they can both live with. Caregivers often may need to negotiate not only for themselves, but also for their loved ones at the same time. Negotiation requires good communication, the ability to identify and express your needs, knowing and setting your personal limits, setting aside your emotions, and showing a willingness to look for more than one solution to any problem. These skills often lead to what we call a win-win situation. After the shock of my husband's diagnosis, I realized that I would need to quickly make some changes in our current situation. I was already stretched in my ability to care for my family and my mother-in-law. My husband's physical situation became bad overnight, it seemed. The lymphoma affected his ability to work, drive, walk, 
and care for himself. After his surgery, his doctors told us that he needed six weeks of daily radiation therapy and chemotherapy. They also said that we might not see a lot of improvement in his physical condition until toward the middle or end of the treatment. We don't have any other family in this country except my husband's mother. How was I going to take on even more? What was I going to do without my husband to take charge and make decisions? He needed me to take some of the responsibilities that he had always done, you know, paying the bills, managing the finances, handling the car service and repairs. The list of responsibilities I would need to take over was getting bigger and bigger. I was scared. I didn't know what to do. The doctors and nurses called the oncology social worker. I spoke with her about my situation and resources available to me. We looked at some options for my husband, my children, and me. One option I definitely needed to learn about was the Family Medical Leave Act. The social worker was able to help me understand the law, which says that family members can have unpaid time away from work to take care of other family members without being afraid that their job won't be there when they can return to work. This law applied to my situation because I worked for a company that had more than 50 employees. With good information, a plan, and having practiced what I would say, I met with my boss about taking the next six weeks off to care for my husband and take him to daily radiation treatments. I knew this was not a great time to be taking time away from my job. Yet, I also knew that I needed the time to take care of my husband and work on additional plans for the rest of my responsibilities. My boss and I were able to negotiate the time off to my satisfaction. Looking at the whole situation, I knew that I needed to fix some other areas in my life that take a great deal of my time. I had found the social worker to be very helpful, so I met with her again to discuss the care of my mother-in-law. I had recently read an article in a ladies' magazine that talked about the sandwich generation. I could really identify with this. I was not only raising two children, but also taking care of an elderly parent. I felt like I was pulled in all directions. Sometimes in the past, I had felt like I didn't have time for myself. I felt I didn't really have a life. Now with my husband's cancer diagnosis, I knew more than ever that I needed to deal with some of these feelings and the issues involved. I know mother and my husband have strong feelings about my involvement in her care. In our culture, this is very important to them and to me. The social worker did help me think about ways that someone else might manage my mother-in-law's actual physical needs, yet I could remain in charge and oversee that care. This helped me look at my concerns in a way that did not mean that I wasn't doing the things that I thought were important. We talked about the people who could do this care. We thought about other family members for support, even though they lived far away. Again, Mei Ling sought information. She took time to set and understand values and limits. She tried to step outside her emotions and look for more than one solution to her problem. The other concern that I had at this time was with my husband. He very much wanted to continue in his role as provider and decision maker for the family. 
This was becoming harder for him to do, especially with the treatment to come. The doctors were telling me that he would get more tired and sicker before he would get better. Already we were struggling with this change that was happening to us. I felt isolated and alone. My husband felt I wasn't telling him about everything. I felt he didn't want to talk about things that needed to be talked about. We needed help. It felt really good to talk to the social worker about these feelings and get some support. She had me attend a caregiver group that met while my husband was receiving treatment. The program was called Strength for Caring. I got a lot of help from the materials passed out at the meeting and from the group members themselves. I also got the strength I needed to negotiate with my husband on the changes in our roles and responsibilities. I was able to put aside my feelings and look for what the social worker called a win-win situation for the both of us. I asked my husband to meet with the social worker and me once he started into treatment, and I felt he could handle the time and energy that this would take. We found ourselves negotiating our roles right there with the social worker. It helped to have someone in the discussion who could be very objective for both of us. Here's a recommendation I make to all caregivers I work with. If you are able, take a few moments now. Listen to the instructions and then stop this audio program and sit in front of a mirror. Pretend that you are talking with a person or persons with whom you need to negotiate. Rehearse what you would say to them. How do you look in the mirror? Are your emotions showing clearly on your face and in your body language? Try it again. This time, try not to let your face and body language show your emotions as clearly as the first time. This exercise may seem silly and awkward at first, but you will find that rehearsal will help you think about questions or stumbling blocks to the negotiation and will help you feel more confident. Mei Ling rehearsed her negotiation with her social worker. Some people feel more comfortable practicing with a friend or family member than with the mirror. Do what works for you. Important tips to remember include get good information, know your values, set your personal limits, control your emotions, and be willing to look at more than one solution to a problem. Create a win-win solution. Rehearse, rehearse, and rehearse. When a child is diagnosed with cancer, it can cause overwhelming feelings in parents. Depending on the age of the child, it may be important for the parents to make sure that any special needs, whether they are related to culture, a school situation, or other concerns in the family, are communicated to the healthcare team. Let's hear from Brian, who is 16 years old, and his parents. When I first noticed the swelling in my testicle, I thought it was from a tackle during football practice. I thought it would go away in a few days, but instead it got bigger and I got really scared. When Brian first showed me the swelling in his testicle, my heart started racing. But I didn't want Brian to see how scared I was. I told him I thought we should get it checked out, just in case there was some internal damage. Our family doctor sent us to the university hospital right away, and that night they were talking about surgery and all kinds of tests. Things were happening very fast. As soon as the surgery was done, and they had the results of the biopsy, the doctors told me I had to start chemotherapy right away. The night before they were going to start the chemotherapy, I had a lot of trouble sleeping. The nurse came in and saw that I couldn't sleep. She sat down next to me and asked me if I was in any pain. Then she asked if I was worried about anything. I got all choked up, and it was hard to talk at first. But I just started telling her how I felt. Was my hair going to fall out? 
Would my friends still be my friends? Was I going to feel sick all the time? Could I still play sports? Would I still be able to have a girlfriend? Would I be able to graduate with my class? Once I got started, all these questions just kept coming up. Once Brian was admitted to the hospital, things started happening to him very fast. As his oncology nurse, I could see that there had not been enough time for him to process all the changes in his life and the things that were going to happen in the next few months. The doctors and his parents were trying to save his life. He realized that. But he also needed to know how his life was going to be different, not just physically, but socially, emotionally, and with respect to his sports teams. The nurse asked me if I had ever thought about having children someday. She said the chemotherapy might affect my ability to produce sperm. She told me I could save my sperm in a sperm bank before my first chemotherapy treatment. The day Brian was supposed to start his chemotherapy, he told his mom and me that his nurse had talked to him about sperm banking. He said he needed to do this before he started his chemotherapy. He did not want to start his chemotherapy right away. His mom and I were afraid that if we delayed his chemotherapy, it might affect his chance of being cured. At first, we tried to change his mind, but when Brian got angry, we realized how important this was to him. He called for his nurse. She suggested we all talk to the doctor before making any decision. We told Brian that we would support his decision, whatever it would be. When the doctor came in, I told him I didn't want to have the chemotherapy that day. I told him I wanted to save my sperm in a sperm bank first. The doctor told me he was sorry he had not talked to me about sperm banking yesterday. He said that it would be okay to delay the chemotherapy for a week or two while I banked my sperm. As we just heard, the nurse raised an issue related to Brian's treatment that the doctor had not yet discussed. Brian wanted to delay his treatment to take a step that would preserve his ability to have children someday. With the support of his parents, he was able to advocate for his position with the doctor. Stated simply, advocacy means standing up for yourself or for someone else. An issue such as preserving the ability to have children may not seem important to everyone. Some people believe that treating the cancer is the most important thing to consider. They may believe that concerns about side effects, such as losing one's hair, facing an amputation, or losing the ability to have children, come second. To cancer survivors and the people who care for them, however, these issues can be just as important as treating the cancer itself. Learning that one may lose a limb or lose the ability to have children could be the reason for a cancer survivor to give up or refuse to have treatment. There are many ways to advocate for someone else or for yourself. In Brian's case, his parents can advocate for him in many ways. They can contact the insurance company and negotiate for payment for the sperm banking. They can contact his football coach and advocate for keeping Brian on the team while he goes through treatment. They can contact Brian's high school and make arrangements for tutoring, homeschooling, or some other arrangements so that Brian will be able to graduate with his class. They can work with the social worker and the oncology nurse to arrange for banking Brian's sperm. They can let Brian's friends know that it is okay to visit him in the hospital while he is going through treatment. They can look for information and resources for Brian related to his cancer. An example would be an online internet support group for young adults with testicular cancer. Let's hear from Katie, who is seven months pregnant and raising five-year-old twins, David and Anthony, and an eight-year-old daughter, Jessica. Katie's husband, Tony, travels for his job and has been in Japan for the past two weeks. One of the twins, Anthony, has just been diagnosed with a brain tumor and will need immediate surgery at a university hospital 90 miles from the family's home. 
When the doctor told me that little Anthony needed surgery right away, I just started to cry. How was I going to take care of Jessica and David, get Anthony to the university hospital, get in touch with Tony, and tell him one of our babies has cancer? I felt so overwhelmed. The doctor sat down with me and handed me a box of tissues from her desk. When I had calmed down a bit, she said she would make a phone call and arrange for the oncology social worker at the university hospital to meet with me and help me plan for Anthony's admission. She held my hands in hers and asked me to look at her. Katie, she said, I want to be sure you understand this. I am very hopeful that most of the tumor can be removed with surgery. What is left can be treated with radiation therapy. I want you to be hopeful, too. It is important that we take care of Anthony, but it's also important that you take care of yourself. There are many people here to help you. Just tell us what you need. I will always be grateful for what she told me and the way she said it. It made me feel like I could go on, that I could get through this crisis. I felt like I was not alone in this. Before I left the doctor's office, I talked on the phone with the oncology social worker. Together we made a list of things I needed to do. There was a column for things that needed to be done right away and another column for things that could wait. When I got home, I called Tony in Japan and he made arrangements to come home right away. He told me to call his mother to come and stay with David and Jessica until he got home. Our faith is an important part of our family's life. I called my pastor and told him what was happening. He came to the house right away and he helped me talk to Jessica, David, and Anthony about what was happening. Then we all prayed together for God to take care of our family. Father John said that families from the parish would bring meals to the house for the next couple of weeks and would drive Jessica and David to school. He asked if I wanted someone to go with me to the university hospital so that I wouldn't be alone. I felt so much love and support from everyone, Anthony's doctor, Tony for dropping everything and coming home, Father John, and the people in my parish. Making the list with the social worker and then taking action right away made me feel like I was in control again. I was moving forward, doing what had to be done, and I was not alone. All I had to do was ask for help, and there were people ready and willing to help me. When one child in a family is diagnosed with cancer, it can easily become overwhelming for the parents to deal with everyone's needs. It is important to ask for help from family and friends. Asking for help is a form of advocacy. It is a sign of strength to ask for what you need to help you and your loved ones deal with cancer in the family. Family and friends can help you to strike a healthy balance between caring for the child who is ill and preserving as much of a normal family life as possible under the circumstances. Members of your place of worship can also help you and your family to deal with the daily demands of caring for a child with cancer. If you need help in advocating for the needs of a loved one, or if you just want to learn more about advocacy, you can contact the National Family Caregivers Association, which is in Kensington, Maryland, or the National Patient Advocacy Foundation in Washington, D.C. Their number is in the reference book that accompanies this audio program. The next caregiver we'll hear from, Grace, faces a different choice. Listen to how she stands up for herself and her needs without reducing the level of care for her husband, Joe, who has cancer. We were devastated when my Joe was diagnosed with advanced cancer 10 months ago. They tried several therapies, but none of them worked. About six weeks ago, we elected to have hospice involved in his care. This is going fairly well, but I have been pretty stretched with caring for him at home. 
On top of this, I recently had to face a personal concern. My only niece, Sharon, was about to get married in New Mexico. Her mother, my sister Terry, was killed in a car accident a decade ago. Since then, Sharon has been like a daughter to me. Well, my Joe got sicker, and there was no way that he would have been able to travel from our home in Florida to New Mexico to attend Sharon's wedding. Our son Bob, who was part of Sharon's wedding party, even offered to come and stay with Joe so I could go to the wedding. I knew how much he was looking forward to the wedding, so that didn't seem right to me. Also, Bob hasn't seen his dad in six weeks. I don't think he had any idea how much care that Joe needed. Well, I kept telling myself that taking care of Joe was more important than attending a wedding. But I love Sharon like a daughter, and I just felt so sad about not being able to go. That got me to thinking about something my mother had always said. She said, where there's a will, there's a way. I thought about whether or not I was being selfish to want to see some happiness in the midst of our sadness. I decided I would find a way to get to that wedding. So I decided to talk with the social worker at the hospice. I was afraid she would think I was being silly, but she didn't. She reminded me that hospice had a respite service where Joe could go into the hospital for a few days so I could get a break. I finally talked to Joe, and he said he knew how important Sharon's wedding was to me, how much I wanted to go, and that he wanted me to go. He said he would go to the respite program while I went to New Mexico. I had one other problem. I didn't drive much, and the airport is in Miami, almost an hour and a half away. I couldn't afford to take a cab, but I could pay for gas. I called my pastor and asked her if she knew of anyone who could help me. She said she would find some church members to assist me, and she did. One man volunteered to drive me to the airport and another to bring me back. Well, I got to Sharon's wedding, and it was wonderful. She was a beautiful bride, and I'm grateful I was able to be there. I will always hold that memory in my heart. Grace honored her own needs and found a way to do something important for herself. She became her own best advocate. For most families, the daily caregiving role decreases or even stops once treatment is over and the cancer survivor returns to work or usual activities. For some families, however, the caregiving role ends only when the loved one dies. If you have cared for a loved one throughout the terminal stage of an illness, you know how demanding it can be. After the death, you may feel that there is a big hole in your life, that in addition to missing your loved one, you don't know how to fill your time. You also may feel relief that the heavy demands on you are finished, and this may make you feel guilty. Caregivers often are exhausted from the care they have provided during the last weeks of a loved one's life and they need time to recover physically and emotionally. This is another time when reaching out to friends and helping professionals is important. There are excellent programs for persons experiencing grief. Check with your local hospice, your hospital, your family doctor, or your clergy. They can refer you to a counselor or a support group. Many other examples could be given to help you, the caregiver, find and receive the support and help you and your loved ones may need. It is impossible to include examples of each and every problem, but the stories we just heard include helpful ideas and possible answers for some of the most common problems. We heard John's concerns about talking to his wife Susan about his feelings. He didn't want to be an added burden on her. He felt he had to shoulder all the responsibility. 
We also listened to Elena's search for information to help her and her husband Salvador find out what they should do when treatment was no longer stopping the cancer from growing. Sandra was a friend, a nurse, and the caregiver for Jean, who had no family nearby. Mary found that she had become so isolated while caring for her husband that she was dealing with her own problems of depression. Mei Ling's story pointed out the concerns of those caregivers who have many roles, such as mother, employee, caregiver to her elderly parent, and now caregiver to her spouse. Brian's parents learned that they needed to know Brian's concerns better in order to do what's best for him. Katie found out that help was available to her. She just had to ask for it. And Grace needed to know that she should advocate for herself to get what she and her husband needed. These are real people, possibly with some of the same concerns that you may have. All of the six skills, communicating, finding information, making decisions, solving problems, negotiating, and standing up for your rights are described in more detail in the basic skills programs of the Cancer Survival Toolbox. These skills can play a major role in dealing with problems that arise for caregivers. We hope that your use of these skills will help you maintain balance and quality in your life. As a final note, please refer to the booklet that came with the Cancer Survival Toolbox for a list of nationwide resources specifically for cancer survivors. Two organizations that you may want to contact are the National Coalition for Cancer Survivorship, which has free booklets on remaining hopeful after a cancer diagnosis, advocating for yourself and others, working with your healthcare team to make sure your needs are met, insurance issues, and employment rights. NCCS can also provide information about cancer survivorship issues. Their number is 1-888-650-9127 or visit www.canceradvocacy.org www.canceradvocacy.org the Cancer Support Community at 1-888-793-9355 has free programs across the country for caregivers. This is the end of the Cancer Survival Toolbox program entitled Caring for the Caregiver. You may also want to listen to other Cancer Survival Toolbox programs such as Finding Information, Making Decisions, and First Steps for the Newly Diagnosed.